0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وطبيب النفوس عبد القاسم اللهم الله الله وصدقه الله الله. وصدقه الله. الله. محمد الله وسلامه محمد وعلى آل بيته المعصومين المظلومين المنتجبين لا مولانا والسيد صاحب الاسر والزمان روحي وارواح العالمين له الفداء واجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنه دائمه ولا اداهم ومنكر فدا الى اله الى قيام يوم الدين بعد رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري من لساني Yafkahu for the hastening of the return of our awaited savior the Imam of our nation, Imam Al-Hujjah, one Salawat upon Muhammad, wa Ali Muhammad. This evening, as we've once again gathered, as we have been for the last four nights, and remembering our beloved Prophet, the Prophet of Mercy, the Imam of this Ummah, Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wa alaihi wasallam. This will be the fifth and the final in this particular series. There is a program tomorrow evening, uh, but it is on a different theme. It's more of an open forum, uh, especially for the youth of the community. But everybody is invited. But we won't be speaking about the Messenger of Allah tomorrow night. It's a different topic. So tonight, I'm going to try and wrap this up. I had planned to speak on another topic, but we'll hopefully keep that for another opportunity. But tonight, because today was the 17th of Rabiul Awal. The actual birth anniversary of our beloved Messenger and also the sixth Imam, Imam Ja'far as Sadiq, alayhi salatu was salam. ala Muhammad Muhammad. Oh, I wanted to try to take this opportunity tonight to kind of summarize and conclude, and just build up on what we have been speaking about over the last four nights. And as you'll recall, if you are with us from the beginning last this past Monday. We were beginning with this review of chapter number thirty-three, Surah Al Ahzab, verse where Allah says, verse twenty-one, where He says, Lakad kana lakum fi Rasulillahi uswatun hasana. that indeed in the Messenger of God you have the most perfect example. But then Allah goes on to mention some qualifiers, where He says, "Liman yarujulah," for those people who hope to meet Allah, who Hope to have that appointment with Allah. Well, yom al and who recall and remember that there will be a final day, a day where all of us will be raised up after we have been, after we have lost our lives and we're buried in the ground. We will all be raised up one day to face our Creator. And so Allah tells us that Rasulullah is only an exemplar, a perfect role model for those people who have that in the forefront of their mind. And then Allah ends the verse off by saying, وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ kathiran, Those who engage in much remembrance of God. And so all three have to be there. We have to remember Allah. We have to remember the day of judgment, that we will all die, that we will all be brought back to life. And we have to remember that in this life, we need to be in a state of constant dhikr of Allah. Now, just as I I didn't talk about the dhikr of Allah over these last nights, but just as a reminder for us, that dhikr of Allah, you know, we tend to think about the dhikr of Allah as being something that we do after our prayers. We'll finish the salat, we'll take out the prayer beads, we'll do the count, the hundred, you know, the tasbih of Sayyidina Zahra, peace be upon her. And sometimes we think that that is the only dhikr of Allah but we have to realize when we look at the hadith of the Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them, they tell us that the dhikr of Allah is not limited to just this little bead collection, this, you know, the string with a hundred beads on it. That's one way to do the dhikr of Allah. But we're told that the real remembrance of God is that any time that we are put to test, any time that we're put face to face with the opportunity to commit a sin, To break the rules of God. Then we remember God. We do the dhikr of God. We remember that God is watching. That there is a day of judgment. And that remembrance should try and help us stop that sin. So dhikr of Allah is not just a passive thing that we do after prayers. The dhikr of Allah becomes an active part of our lives. It becomes a constant theme in our lives, a constant action, whether we're driving, whether we're walking, whatever we're doing, to be in the constant remembrance of God is to realize that we are all accountable for our actions. That everything that we do, the good and the bad and the ugly, God will take us to task for those actions. And so when we get to that level of the dhikr of Allah, of remembering God, of being in a state of constant remembrance of the Almighty, then we can actually look at this verse and reverse-engineer it. So we're remembering God frequently, not just five times a day, but all the time. And then we remember that there will be a day of judgment. And the day of judgment is about what? It's about us being held to account for our actions. As we even read in the Qur'an in Surah Zalzala. Where we say, Famayat Dharratin yara," that whoever does an Adam's weight, an Adam's weight of good will see that. They will see the repercussions, they will see the outcome of that action. And whoever does evil, even the smallest act of evil, we will also see that. We will experience the outcome of that. We will experience what it means when we committed a sin against Allah. And if we go one step before that, it is to be in that state whereas Allah says that we have that awe of Allah, that remembrance of Allah, that reverence of our Creator, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so, all of these three this remembering Allah, remembering the Day of Judgment, and the dhikr of Allah. These are there for those people who take the messenger of God as their role model. And those are hopefully us in this room tonight. Hopefully we take Rasulullah as an example. As I said in the beginning nights, that taking the messenger of God as an example, it doesn't mean I grow a big fat beard down to here, trim off the mustache, that I wear dish dash or pants which are six inches too short. Does it mean I walk around with a piece of wood in my mouth to brush my teeth? No, those are things that the Prophet did, but they're not necessarily things that we are obligated to do. The Prophet rode a camel. We don't ride camels, we ride Lexus and BMs and Mercs and all of these. So we have to, as I said on the earliest nights, that we have to differentiate between the sirah and the sunnah. The life of the prophet in Arabia was a life of an Arab lifestyle, culture. So there were things in his culture that we don't do and we're not expected to do. But there are things in his culture, in his his lifestyle rather, that made him a prophet that we are expected to do. And we've been looking at those over these few nights of how to be a father, how to be a real man, how to be a husband, how to be a father-in-law, how to be a grandfather, how to live in society how to interact with Muslims and non-Muslims, because that was a very prominent role of the messenger of God. He dealt with Christians, he dealt with Jews, he dealt with pagans, idol worshippers, he dealt with many people. And so to follow in the sunnah of Rasulullah, to take him as our example, means we need to look at all of these aspects. Tonight I want to try and summarize and conclude this by looking at a few things at a... Practical level, although I've been looking at practicality over the last few nights, but I want to try and wind it up tonight. We know, and this is no hidden secret, but all of us look for role models in our lives. Some of us do it subconsciously, and some of us are very active in it. You know, Maybe we're watching sports, we're into the NBA or the NHL, and we see a player that we you know, we, we are somehow gravitating towards, and we want to emulate that player. Maybe we want to become like that player. You know, and as youth, maybe we'll go out and buy the same shoes that that player wears, the same jersey. We want to be like them, get the haircut like them. Right? Do whatever they do. And that happens in the entertainment industry, in, in music, in movies, in sports. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen too much when we look at knowledge. People don't say, I want to become the next, you know, best physicist. Or the one who can find a cure for cancer or some, you know, sickness or disease that's out there. And very rarely do people say, I want to become like a Mawlana. Because, you know, that's just not heard of in our societies. (laughs) But because we take people as our role models... You know, When we're children, when we're infants, when we're growing up, the first few years of our lives, parents will realize this, that they see that their children want to follow them. So when the father goes to pray the namaz, hopefully the father prays, the child will run and want to follow the father. It'll stand on the prayer mat beside the father. It'll emulate the father and the mother as well. So when our children are babies, when they have not been corrupted by the society around us, they find the parents as role models. And then obviously they get older, they get into the public schooling system and that is a whole another level of corruption involved in that area. But we, we begin to drift away from Islam many times. Not, I don't want to give it a blanket statement and say everybody is like that, but unfortunately it happens a lot in this society and even in the so-called Muslim world that people get intrigued by the West through the internet, through television, through Netflix, through all of these things, and we want to take the culture that we live in as if Islam has nothing positive to offer, as if the Prophet has nothing to give us in our lives. As I said a few nights ago that a non-Muslim woman wrote a book and i recommend all of you go and get this book. If not buying it, go to the public library. I'm sure they have this book available written by Karen Armstrong. She's a non-Muslim, was a Catholic in the church. She left the covenant, she left the church. She's written tens of books about various religions. One of her books written about maybe five or seven years ago is called, Muhammad, a prophet for our time. A non-Muslim is saying that the prophet of Islam is a prophet for our era, that we need to look at his example. So when a non-Muslim can tell you and I that the Prophet of Islam is a Prophet for our time that speaks volumes. That when we are trying to leave Islam and leave the Prophets, they're telling us no, you need to come back to the Prophet of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And as Muslims, we believe that this Islam that we have, this religion that is been codified in the Quran, that this is a perfect religion. Nobody should have a doubt that Islam is perfect. In chapter 5, Surah Al Ma'ida, verse number 3, Allah tells us this. We hear this verse every year when we have the Hadir celebration. Al Yom dinakum, al dinan. Allah says, on this day of Ghadir, the 18th of Dhul-Hijjah, I have perfected for you your religion. And I have completed my favors upon you. And I have chosen Islam as your religion. So Islam, we believe, is a perfect faith. There's nothing incorrect with it. Whether it be the worship and how we worship Allah, it's the perfect way to worship. Five times a day praying is the perfect way. Whether it be fasting in Ramadan, yes, it's difficult. I don't know about Saskatoon, but when I lived in Edmonton, we fasted for about 19 to 20 hours in the summer months. Same here. here. So people complain this is difficult, but this is the perfect way to worship Allah. Everything about Islam is perfect. If it's a perfect religion, it's a perfect book we have. Now that doesn't mean, let me just stop for a second and say that just because I say that Islam is a perfect religion, it doesn't mean that you won't have questions about Islam. There are a lot of ambiguities, a lot of confusion people have. Why does Islam make certain things permissible, certain things are impermissible? Why are, you know, things like this in Islam, it doesn't make sense to me. Many times people will say to me, and people said to the Prophet, it doesn't make sense, explain it to us. But you know, we, a lot of times we don't understand, not because the religion is deficient, but because our intellect is deficient. We don't understand. And Allah tells us in the Quran that Allah knows and we don't know. And so we have to realize that although there are things that may confuse us about this religion, why is it like this? There's a reason for it. The Qur'an contains many verses where if you and I read them and if you're not trained in the Qur'an, you may come out of that reading experience leaving Islam. And Allah says this in the Qur'an, Allah misguides people, many people, through the Qur'an and He guides people through the Qur'an. Now that doesn't mean the Quran is a book of confusion. Don't get me wrong I think, oh, the Quran is a book of deviation. No, it happens because my heart is polluted. My head has a sickness in it and I read into the Quran what I want to read. You know, today a, a young woman or young man can go and study science, physics, chemistry. You can either become a pharmacist and, and maybe, you know, or, or, or go into the pharmaceutical industry rather, and create medication that can save a human life. Or you can take that same knowledge and create chemical weapons. Are you gonna blame the science? No, you'll blame the person and their intent with how they took that discipline. So the Quran is a perfect book, but we are imperfect individuals. We have to understand the Quran. And if the religion is perfect, the God is perfect, the book is perfect, we also understand that the teacher of the Qur'an is perfect. And as we mentioned on the, one of the earlier nights, that that was one of the goals of Rasulullah. We read this in, in, in Surah al verse number two, where Allah tells us that it is Allah who sent from amongst the Ummiyoon, the people of Makkah, a messenger from themselves. And he had four roles or multiple roles. Yatlu Ayatihi, Wa وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ Wayyu Kitaba Wal He has the job to recite the verses of the Quran, to purify the people spiritually, to teach the book, to teach the wisdom. Because people were deviant, they were misguided, they were off the right path. And so we have a perfect system, we have a perfect prophet. And that's why we've spent these nights to try and analyze certain aspects of the life of the Rasul, to realize that his character is one of perfection. And if his character is one of perfection, that is why Allah tells us that you have the Messenger of God as your perfect example. If he committed sins, we couldn't follow him. We could tell Allah that you sent a Prophet, you tell us to follow him, and now he's committing sins. Unfortunately, many of our Muslim brethren outside of the school of Ahlul Bayt they believe the Prophet can commit errors. They say he missed Fajr Salat or he missed his prayers. He praised Salat in a state of Janabat. He didn't know. And we don't accept any of those reports because if he can do it, but he's supposed to get us to Allah then we have an excuse to Allah. Oh Allah, my Prophet had all of these human weaknesses, had all of these faults. What are you going to blame me for? So we say that our teacher is a perfect teacher. Whatever he gives, we follow. Whatever he tells us to leave, we leave that. And I will show this into, in a hadith that we have that tells us about the Messenger of Allah being this perfect example. One salawat upon Muhammad wa'ali Muhammad. How did the Prophet get to this level of being perfect? As we know, he was born on the 17th of Rabi Al Friday, just like today, in the morning hours. For the first 40 years of his life, he was not openly preaching a religion. He was working on the community at one level, but Allah was working on building the character of the Prophet. And as you know, when he announces, or even pre-announcement, when he was dealing with the people of Mecca who were polytheists, they were idol worshippers, he became known as as and al right? The trustworthy and the truthful. He didn't lie to people. Right? He didn't steal from people. He was one who, if you gave him something and said, hang on to this, Even if you were the biggest (laughs) sinner, the biggest idol worshipper, and that you came back and said, I want that thing back that I gave to you, he would give it back to you because he is a sadiq. And he's al-ameen, he's trustworthy. And this is is something we see in all of the imams of Ahlul Bayt salam they continue this tradition. But the point is, is that that first 40 years in Mecca, it was all about self-building. It was about... Perfecting the character, it was about showing the society around him that his character was impeccable. So that way when he begins to deliver the Quran at the age of 40, that people can't say, well, you know, you were a liar many times, you told untruths. So how can we believe you now that you're a prophet of God? How can we believe you now when you say an angel speaks to you? You used to lie and do all of this before but he was perfect even pre-Prophethood. And how did he get this way? He didn't go to a school, didn't go to a madrasa, he didn't have a teacher in the earthly realm. And this is, some, this is where sometimes our other Muslim brethren say that he was illiterate. We've heard this accusation, Ummiyun means he was illiterate, he could not read or write. Because he didn't go to school, he didn't have a teacher. But we reject that, and the Ahlul Bayt reject that, and they say that, yes, he didn't have an earthly teacher, didn't go to Sunday school, didn't go to you know, elementary and then junior high and then high school and graduate. No, but he had the best of teachers. That was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so there's a hadith, let me go through this hadith in a few parts, where the hadith is from the sixth imam, where he talks about the teacher of the Prophet of Allah. And the hadith says, "Inna Allaha Azza wa indeed Allah, the Grand and the Noble, adabah Nabiyahu. He gave the adab, he gave the teaching to his prophet. Allah was the direct teacher of Rasulullah. and it was the best teaching, the best training that the prophet was given. Then the ver- the hadith says, al adab.'" That once his adab, his training was completed, then Allah says, إِنَّكَ لَعَلَى You, and this is the verse of the Qur'an, where Allah says, Indeed, you are on the pinnacles of morality. khuluq is the, the, the disposition, your, the, the way you deal with other people, your akhlaq, your morals. And Allah says, you are on the pinnacle of morality. You know, like a mountain go to the Rocky Mountains six hours west of here, you see the base of the mountain, you get see the peak of the mountain, there's nothing higher than that peak, that is Rasulullah and his akhlaq. He's at the pinnacle, nobody can be better than the Prophet. The Imams, they're great, but they're the students of Rasulullah. But the Prophet is at the peak of eloquence, the peak of perfection, the peak of everything Every quality that you can think of, the Prophet is the greatest in that. And this is not ghulu. it's not extremism. What we're saying is knowing that Allah is the all-perfect, Allah gave the Messenger of Allah these qualities. Nobody can say that you're putting the Prophet at the same level of Allah. No. Nobody ever could say that. Nobody worships the Prophet. We say whatever he was given was given to him by Allah. Allah was the teacher. The Prophet was the student. And then what does the hadith say? It says, Thumma Then once Allah perfected the akhlaq, the character of Rasulullah, He then basically gave him authority made him to be in charge of the affairs of this religion and of the ummah the temporal guidance the temporal leadership and then the hadith says ibadahu azza wa so that he would basically run the society and then allah says in the quran ma atakum rasulu wama nahakum anhu fantahu. that whatever the prophet gives you take it. That's from chapter 59, verse number 7. Whatever Rasul gives to you, take it. And whatever he forbids you from, keep away from it. Meaning that he doesn't determine the law, Allah determines the rulings, but the Prophet is the law giver from Allah. And so whenever you say, well, why is this haram or halal? And we have hadith, Sometimes my youth complain, they say, well this hadith says that this is haram, how do we know that that's what Allah wants? It's not in the Qur'an, is it? And unfortunately we have this mentality where if it's not in the Qur'an, I'm not going to accept it. And that's a very dangerous ideology to have. Because although the Qur'an is Imam Mubin, it's the, the clear book, وَكُلَّ shayin fi Imam It's... It has the knowledge, but it doesn't contain the particulars, the specifics. Right? I'll give you one example. Today, if a Muslim dies, Shia or Sunni, doesn't matter whether you die in Saskatoon or China or Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran. Every Muslim around the world will give the dead Muslim ghusl with three kinds of water, three types of water. We'll wrap the body in a coffin in white cloth. We'll apply the hunut. We'll bury that body facing Kaaba, Mecca. But you know what? There's no verse of the Qur'an about this. Why don't we just burn the bodies like the Buddhists and the Hindus? Cremate the body. Because there's nothing in the Qur'an that says you bury a Muslim. But yet you will never find a Muslim anywhere in the world that would go other than this rule. But it's not in the Qur'an. You're telling me, I'm only going to follow the Qur'an. Hasbuna Kitab Allah, As the man said when the Prophet was about to die. If you're only going to follow the Qur'an, then how are you going to bury your dead? That's just one example out of the many examples we have. And so that's why I say that don't be stuck on just, if it's not in the Qur'an, I'm not going to follow it. Because if, if the Qur'an had to have everything, it would be like an encyclopedia. It'd be like bigger than Wikipedia, It'd be thousands of pages. You'd have to have every rule for every generation, for every community, for every society. So the generals are there, the general rulings. And then the particulars were by the Prophet, he explained. The Imams explained. And then after that, the scholars, the maraja taqlid. They took from the Qur'an, they take from the hadith, they merge it together with a process known as ijtihad, is this independent reasoning and they come with rules that you and I follow. So when I mentioned two nights ago that music is haram and halal, different styles. Some are haram, we keep it away from it. Some music is halal, enjoy it. Where do you get that understanding? Look in the Quran. If it's not there, look in the hadith. The Prophet or the Imams have had to explain this, otherwise the marja would not give a fatwa on that ruling. So when the, Allah says in chapter 59, Rasul Whatever the Prophet gives you, take it. And whatever he tells you to keep away from, leave it. We look at that at multiple levels, but one is at the practical, the ahkam, the jurisprudence, the do's and don'ts of Islam. And obviously it's a vast topic. I'm just skimming the surface tonight. Then the hadith continues. And the sixth imam goes on to explain Rasulullah. And he says, wa inna اللَّهِ sallallahu He says, Kana musaddadan muayyadan bi la shayin mimma yasusu khalk, Allah. He says that Rasulullah was a protected. Right? Because we believe him to be ma'asum, that he does not commit sins. Keep in mind, ma'asum or isma doesn't mean that he cannot commit sins, it means he does not commit sins. It's not that he has a bubble around him or that he is like a robot programmed or like a character in a video game that you move around. He has the ability to sin, as the Ahalul Bayt do, but they realize the gravity of the sins. They know the punishment which is there, and so they don't sin. Many of us, all of us in this room, I would say, we have isma, we have infallibility to an extent. Nobody will go home tonight and drink a bottle of bleach. Because you know if you didn't drink the bleach, you're going to die. So you know that that action has a repercussion, so you don't do it. Now imagine if you and I knew every sin and what the punishment was. If I knew that the sin of not praying my namaz was whatever it is, I would make sure I prayed. And you're fortunate here to have this center where you have jama'at namaz every night, Maghrib and Isha at least. It's not wajib to come for the Maghrib and jama'at prayers, but if you have a center and you can make it, you're free from work, you're done school, and you have a ride to get here, we have to make it a point to make our centers active. Jamaat prayers is the least that we can do, to keep the lights on, to keep the center active, to keep the sunnah of Rasulullah alive. But if we knew every sin, if I knew for example, if my sisters knew the sin of going outside without hijab, if they knew the sin of wearing makeup in the presence of men, if they knew the sin of showing their bodies off to men who are non-mahram, strangers, And the punishments that are are there, and I won't mention them tonight, because it's a happy occasion. I want to put us more gloomy, you know? But if we knew the punishment, we'd wear that little, you know, one meter by one meter piece of cloth for a couple of hours a day. But the challenge, the problem is, is we don't know the sins, or all of them, and we definitely don't know the punishments that are there. I know that drinking bleach will kill me. But I don't know what will happen if I listen to haram music or if I go to the wrong websites or I watch the wrong shows on Netflix. I don't know what the punishment is. And so, out of sight, out of mind. I don't know, so it's not going to hurt me. It might not hurt you today or tomorrow. But God forbid in the grave, if you haven't asked forgiveness for those sins, that pain will be felt over there. So Rasulullah was protected. And he's Allah, the, the sixth imam says he was made to be successful. And he was assisted by Ruhul Qudus, the Holy Spirit. He had the angels behind him to support him, to assist him. The sixth imam says he, na- he neither made a slip nor a mistake with regards to anything from what he dealt with the social affairs of the creatures. As I said, he doesn't make mistakes. The Prophet knows He's been taught by Allah, the perfect teacher. And so he does not make mistakes either intentionally or unintentionally. Again, our Muslim brethren, some of them say, no, the Prophet can make mistakes unintentionally. We reject that categorically. No, he cannot make mistakes. Thus, as the sixth Imam says at the end of the hadith, thus he was educated by the education of Allah. So his teaching, his upbringing, although as I mentioned the first night, he was an orphan. His father died before he was born when his mother Amina, peace be upon her, was pregnant six months. The Prophet's father leaves this world. And then he only has the love of his mother for about the first four to six years. Then she leaves this world as well. Then he's brought up by the extended family. He might not have had his father to teach him. His father was also a muwahid, a believer in one God. Minur had Amina, peace be upon her, to teach her son the ropes of life. But he had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as his teacher. And when you have Allah as your teacher, who else do you need? Sallallahu ala Muhammad wa alay Muhammad. I'm going to conclude very briefly. I just want to look at two aspects of the life of Rasulullah and how we can implement those in our practical day-to-day life. There's again a lot that has been written. You know, we have great scholars. One of our great scholars passed away in Lebanon just about a month ago. Actually, he passed away on the day of the shahadat, wafat of Rasulullah, the 28th of Safar a few weeks back. He has written a 30 two volume, if I'm not mistaken, 28 or 32 volume, Encyclopedia of the Life of Rasulullah. As-Sahifi Sirat al-Nabawi, I think it's called in Arabic by Sayyid Jafar Murtada al-Amali from Lebanon, spent 20 years writing this book on the life of Rasulullah. 20 years. Can you imagine? Spending 20 years. If I'm not mistaken, when I read the details about this book, he referenced over 60, thousand books he read to write this book, to write this encyclopedia of the life of the Prophet. Unfortunately, it's only in Arabic, there's no English translation or even there's a very bad Persian translation. So There's no safe translation to read. But imagine writing that many volumes of the life of Rasulullah. So what I'm presenting in these five nights is probably not even equivalent of maybe five or ten pages in his magnum opus of the life of the messenger of Allah. The one thing I want to leave us with tonight of the life of the Prophet that we can try and implement is the Prophet's detachment from this material world. Now, I don't want to say that we leave the world, you know, we go up and we de- you know, completely detach ourselves, we live in a cave, we don't have a house, we don't enjoy life. No, but when Amir al when he was speaking about Rasulullah, of when he left this world, what Imam Ali says, he says, the Prophet left this world without the least of attractions to this material world. And when he died, he literally had nothing to his name. Right? It doesn't mean that we sell our home and just go and live you know, in, in a monastery. No, because Islam forbids that lifestyle. But the thing that we have to understand is that we don't, become possessed by what we own. There's a saying that says, are you a slave to what made man? Or are you a slave to what man made? The problem is not owning stuff. I mean, I have a cell phone. If I'm going to follow this hadith, I should just throw this away. I should throw my tablet away, throw my big screen TV away, throw my car away. No, but the goal is that we don't let these things become our goal in life. There are people who work not to provide for their family and have a good life and financially maintain our religious centers and go for Hajj and Ziyarah and Umrah. No, they work just to see the zeros in their bank balance. How many zeros are after that one? How many investments do I have? How 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 good is my stock portfolio doing this week? And you get the app on your phone, so you're constantly checking your stocks, you're buying and selling, you're looking how much money you're making. And that becomes the goal in some people's lives. Islam has no problem with ownership. We're not communists that we don't believe in owning, and you know that everybody should be equal. No, if you're a doctor, you're a, you, know, you have a profession, you should make more money than a garbage collector or a person who is flipping hamburgers at a restaurant. But Islam says don't let these things control you. Don't be a slave of the dollar. Don't be a slave of the system. Don't be a slave of the economy. Use these things for what they're good for, but realize that at the end of the day, when we all die, we're all going to be in that same six-foot grave, six feet under, all with a white coffin. Nobody's going to be wearing their Armani suit and their Gucci or Rolex watch. No woman will be taking her $2,000 purse in her grave with her. No, all of that leaves is left for our inheritors. We're only left with a $10 coffin and our actions. What good we did in this world. And so don't get allured. Don't let this dunya and all the beauty of it, the zina, as Allah tells us, you know, the you know, people are preferring this world to the world to come. Don't be like that. Don't say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just live and, and, and get as much as I can get. No, look at how the Prophet lived his life. Simple. Again, I don't say that we go back to the, the way of the Prophet. You know, a grass, a mud house, and sleeping on the floor. I'm not saying that. We have to keep it in context. But we don't let the transient material world get the best of us. Salwa Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. And the second point I'll end with this for tonight, also a part of the life of the Messenger of Allah that we have to give serious consideration to, is our spiritual connection to Allah, to our Lord. When Amirul Mu'minin in Najul Balagha, there's a sermon. I think it's called the Khutbatul Qasiyah, if I'm not mistaken. It's around sermon number 200 or so in Nahjul Balagha, where he describes Rasulullah and some of the aspects of the life of the Messenger of Allah. He says that every year before Islam came to the Prophet, and before the Quran was revealed to him, every year the Prophet would retreat into the cave of Hira, and the mountain of Nur, outside of Mecca, about five Kilometers outside of Masjid al-Haram, outside of the Kaaba. He would retreat to the cave of Hira. And he would engage in reflection. In what we would call today meditation. Contemplation. Reflection on Allah. Reflection on the world. And then obviously Islam came and then that was removed. And he engaged in other forms of spiritual connection to Allah. Like the itaqaf in the month of Ramadan. Or keeping away from his... Wives in the last 10 days of the month of Ramadan to engage in Contemplation and remembrance of Allah at a more fervent level One of the things that as believers we have to get into maybe a better habit of if we're not already there Is to try and increase our spiritual connection to Allah As I said you have a beautiful center Your city is not that big where it would take you an hour to get from one side of town to the center You know You look at places like Toronto where you can't even make it to the center on time because of traffic, of congestion, of accidents, of gridlock. I don't think you have that problem here. And so when you have a center that is offering something as valuable as the Jama'at prayers, that's one example of the spiritual connection to Allah that we have to try and make the use of. In fact, hadith tell us that if 10 people attend Jama'at prayers... The reward of one rakat is so much that if every angel and jinn were to gather together, they were to take all of the trees on earth to use as pens, all the oceans were turned to ink, they could not write the thawab of one rakat of salat. So you have an, an, an immense opportunity to get reward, not only the reward, just even, even forget about the reward factor, but just the connection to Allah. That's just one example. We have so many events. We have the Thursday night programs that we hold with Du'a Qumail. Another great way to break the the mundane monotony of the rest of the week is to come and listen to the words of the commander of the faithful. We have the beautiful month of Ramadan. We have the precursor of Rajab and Shaaban. We have Muharram. We have all of these opportunities Allah gives us. And maybe there's so many in the year because of the fact Allah knows we're busy. I don't deny the fact that we all work. I have a full-time job. I work two jobs actually, and I still have time to travel. But the point is, is that we're busy. Sometimes we can't make it every Friday for Jummah because of work, understandable. I can't make it seven nights a week because of family commitments, children, my spouse. Maybe I'm overtime, okay. But hopefully on a Thursday night, we can at least make time at six, seven o'clock to come to the center. Hopefully, once a week we can make it to Jamaat prayers. Hopefully, we can try and have other events throughout the year to aid in our spiritual connectivity to Allah. Because believe me, although you might think, well, you know what, I have non Muslim friends, or I have Muslim friends and they don't pray and they're happy people. Well, you know, what's wrong with that? And maybe they are happy people. Maybe they are. But I don't want to be put in that situation where I have to go and try and figure that out. You look at all the research and surveys and studies that experts are doing in terms of the benefits of religion and the comfort that people get from religion. And you see that there are positive outcomes from having faith, from being able to speak to a creator when everybody else turns their back on us. And so we have to use that connection. Again, the prophet used it. He taught that to us, that the prayers were there. He had the Salatul Layl, the Namaz al-Shab, which for us is Mustahab, for the Prophet, it was Wajib. He would pray that every night and he had no qualms about it. We're not asking, and Allah is not asking that from us. Allah says, at least do the minimal that you have as an obligation. Do the 17 rakat of the Wajib, Namaz every day. If you can push yourself to do The 34 mustahab, go for it. If not the 34, start off with one rakat extra, then the two rakat, and then keep adding and adding and adding. Take time to read the Qur'an. This is one thing which I stress upon everywhere I go, is that as a community, unfortunately, we have abandoned the Qur'an. We don't read the Qur'an. We read it in a majlis. We read it when there's a funeral. We read it when there's a wedding. We have a Qur'an, and I'm sure all of us have a car in the parking lot with a Qur'an hanging from the rear view mirror. Maybe you have the app on your phone. Some people are becoming very cool and getting tattoos of the Qur'an. I don't advocate that. I don't condone tattoos, but people are doing it. But the question is, is who's reading the Qur'an? Quran alakulubin Do Muslims not read the Qur'an or are there locks on our hearts? So we have to read the Qur'an, understand the Qur'an. You don't know Arabic, fine. Maybe you'll have brothers in our community or sisters who know Arabic who can teach once a week, Quranic Arabic. You can't learn it? Okay, go to a translation, go to the commentary, look at what scholars have commented on the meaning of the Qur'an. Ultimately, I'll end with this, is that we have to do whatever it is that we can do to strengthen our connection with Allah. Just like when you come home or you come to the center, you want the Wi-Fi to connect so you can do whatever it is you're doing when the Molana is speaking on your phone. Hopefully you're not doing anything on your phone. But sometimes I wonder. But you want the Wi-Fi so you can download stuff. You can do whatever you want. So if we're looking for that connection everywhere we go, go to the mall, we go to Tim Hortons, we go to McDonald's, you want the Wi-Fi to connect do we ever say I want to connect to Allah everywhere I go? I'm at Tim Hortons, I want to connect to Allah. I'm in the mall, I should connect to Allah. right? When I talk about the beginning, the dhikr of Allah. These are just a few points I wanted to share with us on the birth of this great beloved Prophet. And I ask Allah, as I conclude that Allah accept this act of worship from us tonight and all these last five nights, we ask Allah to give us the ability to truly imbibe the love of Rasulullah within our hearts. We ask Allah that He gives each and every one of us the opportunity, the tawtheeq to go to Madinatul Manawwara, that we can put our eyes on that beautiful blessed dome of Rasulullah, that we can go to the dari to the grave of Rasulullah, and give Him our salams directly. We ask Allah to give us the tawtheeq to go for the ziyarat of the Aima of Baqi. We ask Allah to give us the ability to follow in the footsteps of Muhammad and A'la Muhammad, we ask Allah, as we conclude that Allah accept this act of worship, to give the thawab of this majlis tonight to all of the marhumeen, those of, who are here tonight, of all of your marhumeen, whether they be buried here or wherever in the world they are buried. We ask Allah to give them the thawab of this majlis tonight. We ask Allah to give them the barakat of having the nur of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad enter their graves. We ask Allah to... Give the thawab of this majjah to the ulama who have left this world, especially our grand maraja Takleed. We ask Allah to protect the living maraja wherever they may be. We ask Allah to give the thawab of this to the shuhada who have given their lives for the sake of Islam. And we ask Allah, last but not least, to hasten in the return of Imam al-Hujjah, and that he can return and bring about a reformation in not only the society, but also in our hearts. Let us conclude with a Surah al-Mubarakatul Fatiha. For all of those who have left this world, but before that, one loud salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Wow. Wow. Allahumma. So, yeah.